0: Good morning, my name is Michael Novak, and I'm a good friend of Penny's from our seminary days back in St. Louis, and it is great to be here this morning, especially on this special occasion where you're installing Penny as your new pastor. Penny is a great friend, and you guys are getting a faithful pastor, and that is an adjective that needs to be used. It's the most important adjective when it comes to who you want and need as a pastor. This morning, if you have a copy of God's Word, you're going to want to turn with me to Mark chapter 10. It's also printed for you in your bulletin so that you can follow along there as well. Thanks, Andy. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. "'And Jesus and his disciples were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid.' And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they'll condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it's been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, for the way that it shapes and forms who we are. We pray this morning that your truth would be spoken, and that your truth would set us free. In Christ's name, amen. So I'm aware that we don't know each other, but I hope you'll let me tell you a personal story this morning. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and went to elementary school there. And during fifth grade, I attended Farmington Elementary. It was the home of the Soaring Eagles. And since the school only went up to fifth grade, during your fifth grade year, you were given some special perks as as a student, as a fifth grade student. And one of those perks was that you had some extra space in the yearbook to share a bit of who you are, who you were. And fifth graders at Farmington Elementary answered questions that would appear under their yearbook picture. Questions like, um, What's your favorite food? What's your favorite subject? What do you want to be when you grow up? And I remember once I received the yearbook how fun it was to read how all my friends answered those questions. And I was especially interested in how they answered uh, the question, What they wanted to be when they grew up. Lots of my friends answered that they wanted to be professional athletes football, baseball, basketball. Others said that they wanted to be professional musicians. Others wanted to be movie stars. And I still remember to this day what I wrote in my fifth grade yearbook about what I wanted to be when I grew up. I was a cardiologist. Not just a doctor. I had already had my specialty picked out in the field of medicine when I was in fifth grade. And, uh, and, and it was fifth grade, I was going places, I wasn't just a normal fifth grader. I wanted to show everybody I had goals in life, um, that I was going to be important, and I still remember that, that another mom telephoned my mom uh, in, in after seeing that yearbook, uh, and she was praising me for having such great ambition. Ambition, and it's something that we all desire on some level. Ambition is a strong desire to achieve success. I mean, it's what I desired back in fifth grade, and it's what I desire still today. And I would imagine that in a room like this with folks that are full of dreams and talents, there's not a lack of ambition here. We all desire to achieve success, to leave our mark on the world, to make a difference. And there's a reason that we have this desire. That ambition is part of our lives, and it's because we were created this way. If you were to flip back in your Bible to the book of Genesis, you would see that God created humanity in his image and and that he gave them a job to accomplish. In Genesis chapter 1 verses 27 and 28, it says this, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And from the very beginning, humanity was made to do great things. Ambition is built into our DNA as image bearers of God. In and of itself, ambition is a very good thing. A a desire to do great things, to leave your mark on this world, is commendable. It's natural. The desire should be embraced. But as you and I both know, as with all good things we experience in this world, something has gone wrong. Something has gone wrong with ambition. Brokenness has entered this world. We've been separated from relationship with God, and we've lost our original purpose of blessing this world with our presence. And Because of sin, now instead of knowing who we are, we're constantly unsure of ourselves. Because of sin, instead of working to serve others, we work uh, to serve ourselves. Instead of enjoying and appreciating people, we use them to get ahead. Instead of appreciating other people's success, we're just mad that we were looked over. Instead of being content with what we have, we always want more. Ambition has been distorted by sin and brokenness, and ambition is now something in our lives that has the potential to drive us apart. It's got the potential to kill us spiritually, to make us miserable. In a very real sense, it's what we see from the disciples in our passage this morning. They're making their way to Jerusalem, following Jesus, and beginning in our passage, Jesus foretells his suffering and his death for a third time to his disciples. He's already done it uh, two other times here in the book of Mark. and this time, he does it in even greater detail than the previous two times. We see in verses 33 and 34 where Jesus says this, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they'll condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they'll mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. So Jesus tells this to his disciples, and it's as if nothing is registering with them. It's going in one ear and out the other. It's almost embarrassing how blinded the disciples are in the Gospels, right? R- remember, they thought that Jesus is about to institute a political kingdom. He's going to move into Jerusalem, and he's going he's to oust the Romans, and he's going to set up a dynasty. They, they think that that's what's going to happen, and they want to make sure that they've got their places of honor and power once that happens. We see the culprits in verse 35. It's James and John. These two are brothers, and they approach Jesus in a strange way. It's like my eight-year-old Caleb sometimes approaches me and asks for something when he knows it's not likely. He says something like, promise me that you'll say yes to what I'm about to ask you, Dad. <laughs> and I know what's coming out of his mouth next is normally not good. And it's what we see these brothers do. They're almost trying to trick Jesus here. But notice how patient Jesus is with them. He asked them in verse 36, "What do you want me to do for you?" And they ask him, if they can sit at places of honor and glory when Jesus takes power, in other words, they want the best seats. James and John here want power. They want recognition. They want positions in Jesus' cabinet when He takes control. And their ambition has gone wild. It's gone crazy. What these brothers don't realize, though, is that Jesus' glory is going to involve a cup and a baptism. It's what we see when Jesus answers in verse 38. He says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And it's strange language, right? We don't really know what to make of the cup and the baptism. But it's helpful to know that through Scripture, the cup is meant to symbolize God's judgment against sin. And baptism is a symbol for an overwhelming experience. And and so Jesus is saying here that he's about to have an overwhelming experience as he satisfies God's judgment against sin on the cross. And it'll be the moment of Jesus' greatest glory. And because of their blind ambition, these disciples can't even see it. They're simply after power and glory, they're cutthroat, they're willing to trample over one another to get ahead. They want preferential treatment. Whatever they can do to get ahead, they're going to do. And we see the other disciples hear about James and John's plan in our passage, and they're angry. Ambition is threatening to pull apart community here, to sap joy, to kill them spiritually. Jesus recognizes this, and he offers his disciples a different route to greatness. In verses 42 and 43, Jesus is trying to reset the disciples' priorities in a sense. He tells them that the great ones of the world lord it over people. Great ones exercise authority and power, but in the kingdom of God, great ones are those who serve. The most important people in God's kingdom are those who put others first. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't discount the disciples' desire to be great here in this passage. In fact, Jesus encourages that desire to be great. He calls them together and reminds them that they were made to do great things, but not for their own greatness. As followers of Christ, they're meant to emulate him, to follow his example. And this great aim of their life should be to serve others so that they might know God better. And it is an exciting call to serve others so that they might know God. Because when you do great things for your your own end, it stops at your funeral. But when you do great things for God, if you serve others for His sake, those things can trickle into eternity. In a sense, Jesus is calling us to leave our small desires for ambition that revolve around ourselves and He's calling us to a bigger story. To exercise true greatness by serving and loving others by putting others first. It reminds me of a story I heard about Nelson Bell a few years back. Nelson Bell was Billy Graham's father-in-law. And he was a great medical missionary in China. And in the met- midst of Nelson Bell's time in China as a missionary, his wife began to get sick. And he was forced to come back from China to the United States. He left the mission field and all the important work that he was engaged in. And he, spent, he wound up spending the rest of his life pushing his wife around in a wheelchair. And someone one day came up to Nelson and said, Your health is so good. Don't you ever wish you were back in China serving the Lord on the mission field? Basically asking Nelson, you could be doing marvelous things right now. I mean, don't you ever get tired of pushing your wife around in the wheelchair? It's such a chore. And Nelson whipped around from pushing his wife, looked the person in the eye, and said, there's been no greater privilege in my life than to push this woman around in this wheelchair. And in a very real sense, Nelson Bell was demonstrating true greatness at that moment. I mean, putting others' interests ahead of his own, becoming a servant. And if you and I want to learn how to do this to become truly great, we need to look to Jesus. Because by all accounts, he was the greatest man who ever lived. I mean in fact most of the world today would say that he's the most influential person to have ever lived. Even those who don't follow him would say that he's the most influential man to ever walk the planet. He lived over 2000 years ago and we're still talking about him today. Billions of people. I like how one author put it when he said this. At first glance, Jesus' re- resume is rather simple. He never traveled more than a few hundred miles from his home. He never held a political office. Never wrote a book never attended college, never visited a big city. Nonetheless, Jesus is the most famous person in all of human history. More songs have been sung to him, artwork created for him, and books written about him than anyone who has ever lived. Jesus is worth listening to about what true greatness is. He knows what greatness really is. In 2,000 years, no one is going to be talking about you or me. In 2,000 years, no one's going to be talking about Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, those names are going to be forgotten, but in 2,000 years, people will still be talking about Jesus. So he's worth listening to if we want to learn about what true greatness is. And as we close this morning, I want to give us two practical things we learn from Jesus about true greatness and what it looks like in our lives. The first is this. True greatness comes when we forget about others. What do I mean by that? You and I live our lives in constant comparison. We live under the tyranny of comparison. It's why life is often so anxiety producing for us. It's because we're constantly comparing ourselves to others. How do our kids stack up? How does my marriage stack up? How is my parenting stacking up? How much money do I have? How much beautiful am I? How beautiful am I? And we're constantly comparing, living our lives in reference to everyone around us. And isn't that a miserable way to live? I mean, ever notice that as soon as you're around someone better looking or smarter or more accomplished or somebody that has it together more than you do, all of a sudden you lose all the joy you once had? It's not enough to be smart or beautiful or accomplished. We want to be more beautiful, more intelligent, more accomplished. Like how C.S. Lewis puts it when he said, we get no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. I mean, and this leads to misery. Misery. Busy misery, it's why we fill all of our time with work and exercise and shopping for things we don't really need or even really want. Not because we enjoy these things, but because we're trying to build a better resume or image than the people around us, living in reference to everyone else. And the disciples in this passage are also caught up in comparison, and it causes turmoil in their community because they all want to be the greatest. Greatest. They're all jockeying for position. And all the while, Jesus is telling them that he is going to lay down his life for them. True greatness happens when you forget about the opinions of other people. When you stop trying to be special so that others will take notice of you. When you stop defining yourself by what other people say or think and start defining yourself by what God says and thinks of you. And this is true greatness because it's how Jesus lived. Jesus was defined by his Father. He was motivated by him. He was secure in his Father's opinion. And if you're a Christian here this morning, then God thinks the world of you. He calls you a son and a daughter. If you're a Christian here this morning, then then the, the, the truest thing about you is that God loves you. With this comes the possibility for true greatness. True greatness comes when we forget about others. Secondly, true greatness comes when you forget about yourself. In this passage, the disciples are so caught up in themselves. They're so self-seeking. But we can't be too hard on them because if we're honest, we see ourselves in them. I mean, they think they can acquire greatness through self-promotion, but Jesus tells them that greatness comes through self-sacrifice. True greatness comes not through ascending, but through descending. I like how J.I. Packer put it when he said, Christian growth is always downward. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. True greatness comes not through getting, but through giving. True greatness comes not through ruling, but through serving others. I love what Martin Luther King Jr. says about greatness. He says this, everybody can be great, because anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You only need to have a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. Don't you love that? Everyone can be great because everyone can serve. I mean, you can be great by forgetting about yourself, but this is really hard because you and I think about ourselves all the time. Every voice we hear tells us to self-promote. Every voice we hear says, Climb the ladder, look special, be the best, get ahead. But then there's this small but powerful voice from Jesus that tells us the exact opposite. That you can be great as you put others ahead of yourself. Now, how can you and I live in this reality? How can we do this? What could motivate us to this type of lifestyle? Look at verse 45 where Jesus says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus isn't simply, is not simply saying that we need to pattern our lives after him. He's saying here that I have served you. I have forgotten about my honor and my greatness and my dignity in order to come for you. I've laid down my life for you. Jesus took the low place for us. He gave up all prestige, all honor that he had from all eternity past to come and to be the greatest servant. Serving the world by giving up his life for it, by giving up his life for us. And that's why we're still talking about him today. It's why the nations are going to gather before his throne and worship him for all eternity. Because he served us at great expense to himself. And he calls us to do the same for others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the way that you have served us through Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that as we uh, grasp how deeply you love us, how, how, how sacrificially you've served us, that that would motivate us to become great by serving others ourselves. We pray that you would give that to Penny. We pray that you would give that to this congregation, that that would be um, their goal uh, in life.